Great. Good morning, everybody. Thank you uh, to everybody who's taken part. Um, if, uh, can you put my computer up? Um, what we're going to do is take a look at this here, this slide. Praise God for the harvest. Harvest festival, our pastor swap, readings about harvest, etc., etc., etc. Can you talk to one another for two, find someone who you don't know or behind you or in front of you. What's wrong with this picture and this statement? What's wrong with it? Over to you for a couple of minutes. So I'm not going to ask you what, what you thought about it. Um, I'm not going to ask you what you thought about this uh, because it's horrible, isn't it, when you give your, your best thinking and someone says, oh, well, that's not quite what I was thinking about. But let me tell you what's wrong with this picture. Uh, it's the first picture on Google um, that comes up uh, when you type in Harvest Festival, it's the first one there. Praise God for the harvest. And what's wrong with it is it completely and utterly misses the point. This picture is a product of the way that the harvest message has been utterly distorted, twisted and turned into a lovely concept that wonderful middle-class people who've got a lot can show up and thank God for what they've got. I hope to demonstrate to you in the next two minutes, uh, for ten minutes actually, <laughs> why this is a travesty. Why it looks good, but it's not as good as it looks. I grew up in London. I grew up in the city. I've never lived in the country ever. Sometimes I go to the country and I look around and it's lovely for a weekend, but I come back to the city. I live in cities. I like cities. The problem with growing up in the city is that every year since I've been a kid, when I used to go to church as a kid, I, uh, it gets to this time of year and you have a harvest festival. And, uh, you know, most of the people I hang out with, They've seen, uh, they know as little about harvesting and fields as I do. You know, for us, where does um, all this stuff come? comes from the little supermarket across the road. As we just directed you, if you can get some of this pasta now, go across to Tesco's afterwards and come back with something. All our needs are supplied by Tesco's local just across the road. The problem with that, of course, in city life is it creates a kind of difficult moment because we somehow feel that we still need to celebrate Harvest Festival but everything we've got comes in cans. It doesn't come out of the soil. Well it did once and so what happens is you end up with these kind of embarrassing kind of talks each year about harvest where somebody kind of cleverly and but in a kind of muddled way tries to come up with some way of stitching this all together so normally you know traditionally we're not going to do it this morning but you sing the hymn we plow the fields and scatter the good seed on the land but we know darn well that we don't plow the fields or scatter the good seed anywhere but you know it reminds us that some other poor person has got to do that and we're jolly glad we live in cities and don't have to get dirty because it's rather sweaty and mucky. But thank God that somebody out there is ploughing the fields and scattering and putting it in cans for us to get across at Tesco's local. And then there's the other uh, little, it goes on. Uh, we plough the fields and scatter the good seed on the land. Oh, Lord, not us, but someone, thank goodness it's not us. But it is fed and watered by God's almighty hand. And so, Lord, we're grateful to you. We're grateful to them. We're grateful to you. It all gets fed. It all gets watered. It all gets planted. It all, it, it all turns up here in cans for us in the city. And in that way, we end up with a very, very shallow uh, 
harvest message. Um, gleaning um, is a term that we still use in our culture, isn't it? We say, I gleaned a bit of knowledge. I, I, I gleaned something good in my conversation with that person. Gleaning is the, was, actually comes from the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. That's where the concept was invented. And um, even though the uh, methods of harvesting back then weren't as efficient as they are uh, today, those two passages that Daniel read to us tell us what harvest is actually about. And what they do is they give us some instructions. Now, you remember that Israel was an agrarian society. Most of the people were farmers. They were the people that were plowing the fields and scattering and waiting for it to be watered by God's almighty hand. So an agrarian society that's not a rich society, those two passages from Leviticus and from Deuteronomy that Daniel read, and there are plenty more of them through the Old Testament, so it's not like we pick the two that you could pick. But they're pretty clear. And they tie right in with what Eliza uh, was doing when she was, and everybody else, was leading us in prayers around Black History Month. Because Eliza was asking us to pray about systemic injustice, personal injustice, but the the injustice of a system as well. So in those two passages, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, if you remember them, there are some instructions that are set out for the people of Israel. They were to leave the margins of their grain fields unharvested. That's what it said. The band round the edge you must not harvest. The width of this margin appears to be down to the owner's discretion. We'll talk about that in a moment. The second thing they were asked to do was not to pick up whatever produce fell on the ground. So you'd hire reapers and the reapers would come in and they'd bundle up, you know, they'd scythe down the wheat uh, and they'd bundle it up and take it away. But everything that fell to the ground or everything that was left... No one was to go back and fetch it. When a harvester had, had, had finished harvesting, and the second passage in Deuteronomy talks about grapes as well, and other passages in the New Testament talk about olive trees. They were mentioned at the end there. When you, when you beat your olive tree, the olives that were left, when you poured the grapes off your vine, the grapes that were left first time through, when you harvested your field, the wheat that was left because it fell or whatever first time through, you had to leave it there. And thirdly, thirdly, um, when you harvested your grapes, we know from, or your olives, we know this from other passages in the Old Testament, all the grapes that were not already ripe And all of the olives that were not already ripe, you had to leave there. So you couldn't harvest to the edge of your field, you had to leave a a band. You could only harvest once and you had to leave everything that you left and you couldn't go back and do it again. And anything that wasn't quite right, you left it there. And the point of all of this, as both passages point out, is that it should be left there for the poor to glean. It should be left there for resident foreigners to glean. It should be left there for widows to glean, for those who were fatherless, orphans to glean. 
It's quite interesting, though I don't have time to explore it, that if you look at teaching in other contexts from the Near East at that time, you know we've got all these documents now, most of these categories are mentioned, though not in as explicit a way as this. They kind of, in theory, we should be on the side of the poor, but this is set down, this is what you do. But nowhere else does it ever talk about foreign residents. Nowhere else in any other documentation we have from any other culture does it talk about care for refugees. But this is embedded into Christian ethics. This is what Harvest about is about. No wonder they never tell you. Because it's easier to praise God for everything we've had than to really get on board with what Harvest is about. And it's about justice. It's about our involvement. And all of these categories I've talked about, the fatherless, the widows, uh, uh, foreign residents, etc., etc., the poor, what set them apart, if you like, bad expression there from others, it was that they didn't have land and therefore they could not exist without the support of others. This message is as relevant to us, to this city, to what we've been doing here, to our government, to the policy that we are making, to what we're doing about universal credit and the awful gap that's being left where people fall through the holes. Universal credit starts from tomorrow. It's going to cause huge poverty. It's a great thing to simplify the system, but not if you leave people who have nothing waiting for weeks and weeks and weeks. You will see, because I wrote on the front of the news sheet about the food bank, this, uh, this year, on last year, a 75% increase in people coming uh, to our food bank. Quite incredible. Now, gleaning got taken up, and here's some artwork. This is all European artwork. It's all from uh, 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Here it is. Good pictures. Hung in our art galleries around London, actually. All of this you can find in our art galleries. Here's a Van Gogh. We turned it into art, but we've forgotten what it was about. Gleaning, the practice of gleaning, was about creating a society that was just. Now, of course, there's always round, always ways round what goes on. So what used to happen in the Old, Old Testament days is we, we know this from the writings of the rabbis. The farmers had to leave a band around their field so they'd make it narrower and narrower. And uh, they had to leave the first, you know, they could only take the crops once and then they have to, had, had to leave them and then they used to have a, to let the poor come on. Uh, so in the end, the rabbis ruled about this because lawbreakers are always smart. And if you keep the letter of the law, it's not keeping the heart of it. So the rabbis in the end stated that the farmer was not permitted to benefit from the gleanings. What farmers would do is they would pay poor people to come on and glean and then they'd take 50% of that. So the rabbi says, ha ha, you're not getting away with that. And what, uh, and what would also 
happen. Well, in the end, the rabbis uh, uh, said that no farmer could scare away the poor by trying to frighten them with the use of dogs or lions. In other words, when you get a law, you can always break it. It's got to come from our hearts, and that's an important principle. That's a really important principle. In this country, the right to glean ended in 1788. It lasted a long time, based on the ethic that comes from uh, the Old Testament. It ended in 1788. And the reason it ended uh, was simply um, because um, a reaper could easily impose upon a master by leaving too much for the gleaners, who might be his own children. In other words, farmers in this country were employing people to harvest their field, but they had relatives who were poor, and so they would purposely leave 78% or whatever it was, most of the, most of the corn still in the field. And again, people were getting around the law. It's what's in your heart, it's not what's written on a piece of paper in the end. That's the only way we beat the system. We used to harvest with this. This is a sickle. Here's a part of the world in India where that method of production is still used. But in the 1950s, in 1952 actually, this extraordinary thing happened in our country and in America. The rise of the combine harvester. Now take a look at that picture. They gather... And there's lots left because they're gathering by hand. And this still happens in some countries around the world. Take a look at this picture. The combine harvester gets everything. It's totally efficient. It leaves not one grain left behind. Look at it mowing through things. And here is the biggest combine harvester available on the market today. Let me read to you about it. It's called the CR1090. For untold centuries, so says the advertising for one of these things, in case you're in the market to buy one, for untold centuries, humanity manually harvested and, and threshed our grains to separate the literal wheat from the chaff. The advent of the combine harvester in the 50s, however, has vastly increased our ability to cultivate crops and harvest them. The, um, then it talks, uh, it goes on to, I won't read it all, the, the first combine harvester actually was called the Hercules. Good name, Hercules. Now, the new CR1090 from New Holland does better than anyone has done before. It has up to 15% higher productivity than the brand's previous highest capacity model. And when compared with what was considered a high capacity combine a decade, a decade ago, this new machine has over 25% more productivity thanks to advances in harvesting and engine technology. In addition, it finishes off, while the cabin offers the same comforts as you'll find in a mid-sized sedan, along with a 10.4-inch Teleview uh, um, four color touchscreen control panel and even a built-in drink cooler. <laughs> so you can get every last grain at the same time as keeping cool and sipping something good. 
Now, what am I talking about here? I'm not saying that advance is wrong. This isn't an anti-combine uh, harvester address. <laughs> it's telling you this, what I've said before. It's the hearts, not the law, that matters. We can live by the letter of the law, and then there's nothing left to glean. But it's for us to reinvent the concept of gleaning, the concept of justice in every setting. And so you'll see from the teaching of the rabbis that I briefly talked about, as time went by, they had to add to what Deuteronomy and Leviticus said because there's always someone, somehow, with their understanding, trying to find their way round the system of justice. The combine harvester is a fantastic thing. It does enable us to increase the yield and the capacity and our capacity. It does harvest more. It creates um, a fairer system as long as we keep the concept of gleaning. So I'm not asking you to be, become anarchists. I'm not asking you to head down to Sussex this afternoon and pull out somebody's wires so they can't get started tomorrow morning. What I'm saying is this. We need to find ways of gleaning in our society. Do you know what fair share is? It's a fantastic um, charity. We work with Fair Share here. So Fair Share take the surplus from supermarkets around the country on a giant industrial scale. We throw away hundreds, millions of tons of food each year because our food is prepared for a certain, we're expecting it to be cold, but it's hot and nobody buys that food. Or we're expecting it to be really hot over August bank holiday weekend and it pours with rain. So there's all of that salads and all of those hamburgers, etc., etc. What happens to that overproduction? Fair Share is a great organisation. They do that. They work with us. So some of their food comes into uh, the school here, South Bank School. The food bank, our Waterloo food bank, which is now open six days a week across this area, read about it on the front of the news sheet, is a way of gleaning. It's a way of justice. What we have to do, if we're going to build a fair world, is we have to remember ancient rights, the rights of harvest. It's important that we stop and we remember. But more than that, Beyond that, what we've got to do is reimagine that for our own culture. I got to flick right back to the beginning. I, I, somehow the slide that I most needed has got left out. So as I hand over to Jerry, let me read to you from this piece of paper what um, Danielle read. And when you knock olives off your trees, do not go back to the branches a second time. Leave what remains for outsiders and widows. Leave it for the children whose fathers have died. When you pick up grapes in your vineyard, do not go back over the vines a second time. Leave what remains for outsiders and widows. Leave it for children whose fathers have died. And then that last verse that Daniel read. Daniel read. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This is why I'm commanded you to do these things. God says what harvest is about is a remembering of our own poverty, remembering of our own need, and not excluding others who find themselves in that position today. Over to Jerry.
You can tell I don't have a smartphone, can't you? Um, in your uh, bulletin, you will have received uh, one of these circular things. And uh, can I just ask if there's anybody who didn't manage to get a bulletin this morning? Because there's a few things in there that I'm going to be referring to. If you didn't, would you mind putting your hand up? And maybe David and Peter, could you do a quick scoot? So um, we're in the middle of a series where we're looking at the core values of Oasis. And today we're looking particularly at that of involvement. And um, there's a complex statement there which um, I'd like in the course of the next 10 minutes or so to try to unpack in various ways. So it says, we believe that we are invited to partner with God in bringing hope and transformation to all. Our task is to work for this in our own community and for society as a whole, to help create just and compassionate social, economic, and political structures for the planet and all its people. And it seems to me that the basis for our Christian faith and the basis for doing this is illustrated by the partnership that God has established by intervening in our lives from day one. It's not that we partner with God, but that he has partnered with us. There's this comment from the Apostle John who spent his life, uh, spent three years of his life walking with Jesus. Says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the same thought is taken up by the Apostle Paul. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I'm sure this is a truth which has been resonating deeply around your bones for many, many years. Um, it's grace, and the essence of our faith can be expressed in that word grace, can't it? And so the Apostle Peter, who also spent a good whack of his time uh, with Jesus, talks about this in his first letter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy... He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So can I ask you, do you, do you experience that hope? Do you experience that sense of new birth? The term born again has been slightly corrupted by the 80% of U.S. evangelical Christians who unfortunately supported Donald Trump. But actually, the, the original... Um, Greek words, genoa anoken, for born again, from John chapter 3, where Jesus remonstrates with the Pharisee Nicodemus, uh, they mean freshly conceived from above, freshly fathered from above. And, and we all need that, don't we? I think that's well illustrated, excuse me, by this delightful promise from the prophet Ezekiel, which is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And heavens above, don't we need that? I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you will be clean. And of course, that's what we celebrate in Christ, isn't it? I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I had a meeting the other day with a senior social worker and a highly vulnerable individual. And for an hour, 
and this is not to belittle social workers by any means, but for an hour, what this person, the, the senior social worker did with this vulnerable individual was effectively to bully them. And I was there to advocate on behalf of the vulnerable individual, and I could feel my blood pressure rising. And those of you who know me, I have a capacity to lose it. Um, and I thought, no, 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 you know, be cool. And, um, but I thought that, you know, at the end of this conversation, I thought, this is, what I'm just seeing here is a heart of stone. You know, this vulnerable individual needs some, some support, but none was forthcoming. I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will be my people and I will be your God. What a wonderful promise from God. And so as we look at the world that we live in, we see injustice everywhere and, and, and not just you know, random unkindness, but we see systemic injustice. Steve talked about universal credit. Um, and so for the last three years, I've produced a weekly review, two years and nine months actually, um, from July 2014 until Easter Sunday 2017, I produced a document every week which ran to about three, four sides of A4. And um, what I did was I analysed seven news stories every week of injustice to try to analyse the structural mechanisms behind them, the chains of injustice um, that you see referred to there, which are illustrated by, I think, this picture. Um, and uh, I won't bore you with the details. I've collected all that together in this document, which runs to 300 pages and a quarter of a million words, which I'm sure you wouldn't want to read. It's available on the church website, but it's a copious reference source of all of the various different mechanisms. It looks at 596 different themes. But today, I don't want to discourage you by talking about injustice. Instead, I want to talk to you about justice. And so I've distilled out 146 case studies of people who've made a concrete difference to the world around us. Because the purpose of my talk today is to inspire and equip and envision and encourage and mobilize and motivate and energize you and all sorts of other words beginning with E. So this is available free. There's 20 copies there um, if you want one. Um, I also write the downtime thing, which is in your um, bulletin. And so there's an email address there. If you want a, a soft copy, then you're welcome to get that from me. Um, and I hope that will give you lots of encouragement. And in a minute, I'd like to show you uh, some case studies of some of, the, some of the people who've done what they can, where they are, with what they've got to address this. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, says God, to loosen the chains of injustice and entire the cords of the yoke? The yoke is the, the strip of wood across cattle that binds them together. It's the force that imprisons them. It's like slaves, as we heard about earlier, being shackled. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. And so um, I've tried to produce some resources. If you look in your bulletin, you'll see that I flagged up um, 100 different case studies. I'm sorry that you'll find these um, slightly misprinted in some areas. Um, um, but what you've got here, in fact, it's 96, I exaggerate. What you've got here are 96 different areas of social justice where what I've done is flagged up action groups and campaign groups 
because what God has been doing in your life is unique to you. And so you may be passionate about domestic violence or disability rights or refugee action. There might be a whole bunch of things that, because you and I can't change the whole world. We pray about Donald Trump, you know, when we meet here. We pray about Kim Jong-un and other uh, maniacs who threatened to blow us sky high. Um, and, and actually prayer is pretty important and sometimes we belittle it and we fail to take seriously our responsibility to intercede for the world that we live in. But actually here are 96 different areas of social justice in which you can get involved according to your specific interest. So I don't want to kind of um, take up too much time looking at that right now. But Kat, if you wouldn't mind just playing that DVD clip. I'd like to show you a short three-minute clip from an excellent TV series that uh, was produced earlier this year called Broken, which I think illustrates the principle um, uh, articulated by Peter Benenson when he founded Amnesty International in an Observer newspaper article in 1963, where he said, it's better to light a candle than curse the darkness. And for that reason, um, as this is playing, maybe Nita, you could come up now. I've just asked Nita if she wouldn't mind coming up and to light some of these candles to illustrate um, our ownership of a particular campaign, a particular issue, a particular cause. And so I urge you to think of something that you could, something very specific that you could do this week that would change the gear of your life and enable you to get much more involved in issues of injustice. Thank you, Kat. Got your tongue? No, no, I just uh, just want to listen for a while. Yeah. Christ is with us, sharing our pain, just little reminders of his presence. I'm gonna kill myself, Michael. Provocateur knickers. Mm. Chanel perfume. Want to make a good impression on the slab? Well, why do you want to kill yourself? I'm an office manager, and over the past eight years, I've stolen. 232,648 pounds. And in a week or two, for reasons I'll not bore you with, my boss is going to find out. What did you spend it on? Some of it was on me. I'm a gambler, most of it went on machines. trick. The silent trick. No, it's not a trick. I'm genuinely lost for words. You could ask me how I'm going to do it. How are you going to do it? Yeah, thank you. Thought about standing in front of a train. Uh, so that idea from Peter Benelson, um, it's better to light a candle. 
than to uh, curse the darkness. Um, Eric Clapson um, died in July 2013 of insulin uh, of an insulin deficit. Um, he had insulin in his fridge. Um, his fridge didn't work because the electricity had been turned off because he'd been benefit sanctioned. Uh, he had £3.44 in his bank account. Um, uh, he'd been sanctioned because he missed two Job Centre Plus appointments, one of which was because he went to a &E, another of which was because he went to a funeral. Uh, he's 59 years old, a former serviceman. Um, when they did the post-mortem, they found absolutely no food in his alimentary canal. The Department for Work and Pensions is sitting on and refuses to publish details of over 60 investigations of people who've died as a result of benefit sanctions. This is Diram Ben Abaid, who is responsible for the emancipation of over 600,000 people held in slavery in Mauritania in northwest Africa, which is the country in the world with the greatest incidence of slavery. It's estimated that 17% of the population of Mauritania is enslaved. This is a community food club where people get together not just to provide food in raw form with means testing and referral by GPs, but a regular meal kind of situation. This is Corriente Villera, which is a bunch of people who buy second-hand ambulances in Buenos Aires and drive them around the slums because the state ambulances won't go into the slums. And they connect people who are disenfranchised with healthcare. This, these are um, better shelters produced by IKEA. They cost $1,200 each. Um, they will last for three years. They have a polypropylene stab-proof wall. They can be bolted to the ground. They have solar panels. They last six times longer than tents. 65 million people in the world are refugees living in camps um, and possibly spending the rest of their life in structures. So some bright soul has come up with a bright idea. You can assemble these in four hours with a hammer. Um, this is the Pages Arabic Library in Istanbul, which provides facilities for children who are Syrian refugees to read children's books in their own language for 11 hours a day, seven days a week, um, uh, at no cost whatsoever. This is an initiative to, um, to provide for the incidence of Syrian refugees in Turkey, which is the country that has taken something like 3 million refugees, while we struggle to take more than 350, according to the amendment to the immigration bill lobbied by Lord Dubbs. These are reconciliation villages in Rwanda, where um, both aggressor and aggressee in the genocide of 20 years ago live side by side. Um, where they live together, they cook together, they eat together, they look after each other's children. They cannot forget what was done, but neither are they going to carry on living in the light of it. This is the Robin Hood restaurant in Madrid, where what they do is they use their takings from breakfast and lunch to provide uh, meals for homeless people of an evening to the same standard that they would provide for you and I. In other words, with clean tablecloths, with cutlery, with a variety of drinks, with waitress service. In other words, it's a conscious effort to treat homeless people on a par with everybody else. Um, and it's the, run by an organization called Mesajeros de la Paz. And it's, it's been a project running now for some years by a 79-year-old Roman Catholic priest. Um, the Royal National Lifeboat Institution is active in Bangladesh because one of the biggest sources of child death is drowning because much of Bangladesh is above the floodplain. So children fall into ponds. Many of them can't swim. So these are um, staff taught to teach children to swim and also to save their younger siblings' lives. That's a practical action being taken by the Royal National Lifeboat Institution. This is Bob Holman, who many of you will know from Thought for the Day. He's probably done more to advocate on behalf of issues of poverty in the UK than anyone else. Margaret Thatcher once said, poverty is a lack of character. 
Bob Holman said, poverty is a lack of cash. Um, this is Emilia Camvisi, who was awarded the Nobel Prize earlier this year for rescuing um, asylum seekers on the um, island of Skatila, which is within six miles of the Turkish coast. She's 85 years old, and she was busy rescuing refugees. This is Fatou Bensouda, who's the Gambian uh, chief prosecutor at the International Criminal Court and arguably the most powerful woman in the world. Um, she has the power to bring heads of state to justice, as we have seen just recently with um, uh, Isen Abre from the Republic of Chad. Um, I've forgotten his name. Uh, he runs a nursery in Aleppo, um, and these are children who've been left parentless as a result of Soviet bombing. So I need to shut up and finish. <laughs> But I hope you're with me, and I think if you want some encouragement in, in what you can do to change the world, there's 140 case studies here. I do not believe that every single one of us cannot find something to inspire, equip, envision, enable, educate, enlighten, help us to make a concrete difference to the world that we live in. The economist John Maynard Keynes was used to, as economists are to talking about the short, medium, and long term. He said, in the long term, we're all dead. <laughs> I don't know about you, I find it very helpful to memorize scripture uh, because Paul talks about, you know, that the word of God dwell in you richly. And so for me, I have one verse, which I have memorized something like 45 years ago. Uh, that's how old I am. I know it. I, I don't look it. I know. Modest has always been my strong point. Um, but, you know, he has showed you, he, Christ, God has showed us in Christ, mortal man, mortal woman, what is good. And what does the Lord require of us? But to do justice, to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. It's better to light a candle than curse the darkness. Thank you, Jerry. So um, we're going to sing in a moment or two. But back to what Harvest is about, or not back to it, because that's what Jerry's been talking about. Praise God for the harvest. You see, in actual fact, the real question is not about how much we praise God for what we have. Of course we do. But what are we going to do with it? How are we going to share it? How do we share our wealth, our economic wealth, our cultural wealth, our social wealth, our educational wealth? How do we invest for others? When you come to harvest your fields, the great and wonderful things that God has given to you, don't harvest to the edge. Don't go back through yet again. Leave things for those who have not. Why do we do this? Remember that you yourselves were slaves. You were hopeless. You were bereft. You were the poor. That is why God says, I'm commanding you to do these things. This week, a great breakthrough on Thursday, should tell you. Um, after two years of battling, um, over two years of battling uh, with government, we won the right, formally and officially, um, from next September to open a sixth form school here. That's an extraordinary breakthrough. What does that mean? It means that we're going to carry young people from birth in the play space all the way through to the age of 18 
and on into their chosen careers. That's an incredible breakthrough, an amazing breakthrough. Why do we do that? Because God's been good to us and he's given us some big fields. And our job is to share the produce of our lives with others. So the question is, that picture, what have you got? Who are you? What are your opportunities? Old or young? What are your, what's the wealth that you have intellectually, financially, in terms of your time, in terms of your friendship? And how will you invest that? Let's pause, let's pray for a second, and then we're going to sing. Take a moment, perhaps as you look at that disc that you've got, the wheel that you've got. How will you invest the wealth of the fields that God has given to you?